We turn to Colossians chapter 2 again, our scripture study in these days, Colossians 2 and uh, end of verse 2 and then a little bit of verse 3, hopefully, we'll be looking at this morning. Colossians 2 begins a series of comments that Paul, the Apostle Paul, has regarding um, more of the concerns he has for the Colossian church, uh, spiritual concerns, doctrinal concerns, and even practical concerns as they live out their lives for Christ's sake. Paul had a great burden for the churches that he helped to establish, and even this one that he didn't establish directly. Uh, he had never been or had not been in terms of a church planting mode in Colossae, and so uh, this man Epiphras was the one who did it. And yet Paul says here in verse 1 that he has a great struggle for these people. In, in Colossae, also a neighboring town, Laodicea, and all those who have not personally seen my face. One thing I didn't bring out last time in this verse 1, how many times, uh, this last phrase, those who have not personally seen my face, how many times in Scripture, several times, I, I remember uh, counting them all, when it says when people meet each other, that it, it is it is seeing people face to face. Now, how important that is, especially in this day of masking. Uh, you you cannot see each other. It's like there's a barrier between them. It's just one part of the face, and yet uh, when a part of the face is covered, it it hinders communication, enters hinders the intimacy that we can have in relating to one another. And Paul says, I have a burden, even for those who have never seen me, have never seen me, uh, seen my face. And not that he was a, something to look at. You know, he was a, a handsome fellow or anything. That wasn't the point. The point is, can we have this kind of communion, sharing uh, with one another? And he says, even if we have not had that benefit, I still have a burden for you, a great struggle for you. What is this struggle? Let me read uh, verse uh, 2 and then down to verse 5, I think, uh, or verse 4. I forget how far I have on here. Uh, he says, I have this struggle for you. Here's the struggle, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge, knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. We looked at verses 1 and 2 a little bit last week, and the, the goal that Paul had for the hearts, not just the the outer man of these people to be prospering, but but to have their hearts knit together in love, or encouraged, of course, but but practically having been knit together in love, to be congealed one to another, to have that unity that is uh, able to uh, prosper them corporately. He has an individual mandate. Remember back chapter 1, verse 28, we admonish, we teach every person, every individual with all wisdom. We want every person to be complete in Christ, but he has a bigger perspective. I want the whole church to be knit together in love, to have this wonderful unity that comes from uh, a basis of love, but also a basis of truth, of doctrine, that is uh, the foundation for our fellowship. We're not gathered around a political party or a sports team or uh, a season of the year or anything like that. We're gathered around the truth of Christ, and that is what we celebrate. That's what we give our attention to in our scripture readings, even in the choice of our, our hymns, and, and definitely in our preaching. It is giving attention to God's word. We need his word indwelling us, training us, teaching us. <clears throat> We want to attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. We may strive after gold and silver and all these precious stones, but the real wealth is knowing God. It is understanding his 
beauty, his glory, his activity, his presence in our lives. And it's something that we can understand to a degree, to the degree that God wants us to understand these things. That's not to say he's hiding things, but how can we who are finite creatures understand an infinite God? And how can we, by our own methodology, our own uh, creativeness or or, um, confidence, how can we discover a mystery? You can't. When he talks about mystery in the next verse, and we saw it back in chapter 1, the mystery that is now revealed to the saints, well, the thing about a mystery is you can't discover it. You can't stumble upon it. Oh, there's a mystery. We just solved this mystery. No, it is something that has to be revealed. It cannot be discovered. It must be revealed. And where is it revealed? Well, it's revealed in Scripture. It's revealed in Christ himself personally. He is that which is the, the riches of this mystery. And it, it's something that to, to whatever degree God has revealed to us these wonderful truths, he wants us to not just uh, dabble in them or, or kind of have an appreciation or a, a respect for these truths, but to grip them, to grasp them as if they were your life. Because this is God's word. There is no salvation. There is no hope. There is no really reason for living outside of God's truth, God's reality in our lives. To live a life as Solomon tried. Remember Ecclesiastes, he wrote an old testimony about how I tried to find meaning for meaning of life outside of God. You know, under the sun, without a perspective on the heavenly God. And he says, you know, I tried this, then I tried these. I tried it to the nth degree. Because one of the benefits of Solomon was he had unlimited resources, right? I mean, just, wow. Money uh, and and uh, women and wine and all the stuff that he tried, he says, that's vanity. It doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. It, it shows us that there's something greater. As my father-in-law would say, that we are empty buckets. And we try to fill it with all kind of things. But the problem is, as Jeremiah said, you guys, you uh, Jerusalemites specifically, but Judeans uh, generally, you have forsaken... God, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn for yourself cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. What is he saying about there? You know, there were, th- there were three major types of water sources in, in ancient Israel, even today to some degree. And the best and, and the, the purest water is that which comes from a stream. Of course, rainwater, but rainwater only comes in a certain period of the year. In the summertime, when do you get your water? He, a stream is the best, purest, most delicious water. Next best thing would be a well where you can draw water, fresh water out of the ground. The third and least desirable option, but hey, if you've got nothing else, make a cistern. Dig a hole in the ground, plaster it with, with plaster so it's waterproof, water resistant, and then water will come in from the rain and fill it up. Problem was, these Israelites forsook the best source of water, the fountain of living waters, fresh, wonderful, sweet water, and they made cisterns that can't even hold water. That's what we do when we say, God, I know you're out there and I know you're great, but I'm going to go this way. I'm going to try to do as Solomon did, find your life and satisfaction in things that aren't uh, God or godly. And he says, Paul, coming back to Paul, he says, how, how, do you, how can you have a full assurance of understanding in that way? This knowledge of God's truth ought to come and, and transform your life. It ought to transform your uh, whole aspect of being, everything that you think about, talk about. What are you consumed about in your, in your uh, aspirations, your dreams, your desires, and so forth? He wants this wealth, not to be in terms of the things that Solomon went after, but in terms of knowing God, 
knowing God, drawing near to him. What does it say in verse 3? This is where we get into this this newer uh, text, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Oh, we like mysteries. We like knowing the, the inscrutable and trying to figure that stuff out. What is your mystery, God? It's Christ. Christ is the mystery. Christ is that one in whom it says are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You guys want to grow in knowledge? You want to grow in understanding wisdom? Look to Christ. You want to mature? What did Paul say? That every man may mature, every person may be mature or complete in Christ, Colossians 1.28. To be to have a measure of stature, Ephesians 4.13 says, what are, what are we all motivated toward until we all attain to the unity of the faith the knowledge of the Son of Man, Son of God, uh, to a to a mature person, to a, what I would say, to mature adulthood, to the measure of stature which is the fullness of Christ. Wow. So everything in our lives comes back to this person, this God-man, Jesus Christ. There's nothing in our world, nothing in our existence that can be understood or appreciated or celebrated outside of Christ himself. We think, boy, that's kind of heady. How dare God put something, something, all, all this pressure on Jesus? He can't bear all that. He can bear it. Didn't we study this in, in excuse me, Colossians 1, 15 to 20? Christ is sufficient. He is supreme over everything. He is over all these other lesser creations, and he is king of creation. He is the one who not only is sovereign over that, he is sovereign over the church, this redeemed humanity who gave his life for. Yes, Jesus can handle it. Jesus can handle all the pressures, all the... the uh, the difficulties of having all this power because he's good. He is gracious. He always does the will of God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. In terms of his earthly life, that's what he did. And now he is awaiting that time when he will be recognized as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will come in glory. Right now, we have a head start from all the other uh, nations of men and even those whenever Christ comes back in his glory, all those who will at that time bow the knee and confess with their tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have that benefit now having come face to face with him in the scriptures, face to face in the power of even his body, the church, that we can celebrate and give honor and glory to the Son of God. In him are those riches. And yet we say, oh, Maybe I like those riches. Those are good for Sunday. But what about Tuesday afternoon? Good grief. What am I supposed to do then or Thursday morning? Does Jesus have anything for me on Thursday morning? Yes. Jesus is our life. Philippians 1 says, Paul, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. What? To live is Christ? What do you mean, Paul? My life is totally consumed. It is, it is as Paul says in Colossians 3, our life is hidden with Christ in God. We can never get over the fact that Christ is supreme. He is central to our lives. And, and for us to say, well, you know, Christ is good. I appreciate what he's going to do for me in the future. I know that he's going to bring me out of hell or take me away from that uh, condemnation. But right now, I, I guess I don't really have a use for him. Uh, we don't want to have that attitude. And yet so many people, so many Christians act like, what's, what's the term, uh, a Christian atheist or, or Christian agnostics. We, we just, we know and we appreciate, we say, yeah, yeah. But we want to live for his glory. We want to be have a true knowledge of God's mystery. We want, we want not just a, a passing um, appreciation for it, kind of like maybe you know who's playing in the Super Bowl this year. Is there a Super Bowl this year? I don't even know. I guess there is. But to have a passing knowledge of that, maybe the, who's the quarterback of one team and the 
Okay, you can know that, but okay, who was in the the game last year or the year before, 10 years ago? Do you have such an intimate, deep knowledge of that that you can spout off those things? I'm not taking anything against that, but can you do the same thing for God? Can you give the, the stats for how many people Jesus healed from blindness? I mean, that's a pretty good stat. How many people did Jesus raise from the dead? How many people has Jesus touched that we may never hear about, who we may never see or, or, or visit personally? Can we celebrate those stats? Can we have this wonderful adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ that totally just takes over our, our lives? A true knowledge, not just a, a passing knowledge, not just an appreciation for, but to be totally taken with this man, this God-man, Jesus. The true knowledge is what we're after. It's God's mystery, but that mystery cannot be discovered. It needs to be revealed to us. Christ himself, as John 1 says, he came. Uh, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. What did he do? He exposited or he, he uh, presented, interpreted, explained God the Father. You want to know who the, who the Father is? Well, look at God the Son. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Wow. So when we talk about knowledge of God's mystery, the, the things, uh, it's Deuteronomy 29, 29, I think, that says um, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed, so the secret things, the mysterious things belong to him. But the things revealed belong to us and our children that we may keep the words of this law forever. Okay, so he just said a couple things. There are secret things, this mystery that needs to be revealed from God, but there are things that, that God doesn't reveal to us. Or that if he's tried to reveal them, we don't get it. We, uh, Paul, Peter says it about Paul's writings. Sometimes he writes things that are hard to understand. Which, what happens? The unlearned and unstable distort to their own destruction. We don't want to do that. We want to look at this and say, I don't understand this. I don't understand how this can be, how this truth can be true and this can be true at the same time. I don't see how they fit together. Kind of like, you know, a positive and a positive pole of a magnet. They don't, they don't ever get together. But in God's understanding and God's infinite wisdom, they can. And thankfully, what does Romans, last couple of verses, three, four verses of Romans 11 say, nobody's become his counselor. God doesn't owe us anything. It's not like he's in debt to us and he says, oh, I, I need to pay off my debt. No, he, there's nothing like that. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For us to say, I think I've got God figured out. Remember that didn't work very well with the Israelites back in, was it 1 Samuel 5, when they were fighting against the Philistines and they said, hey, if we bring the Ark of the Covenant down, then we've got God by the tail. We've got God in a box, literally a box, the Ark of the Covenant. Let's take him down and we'll have be guaranteed victory. God says, I'm not going to do that for you. I'm going to deliver not just you, but this box into the hands of your enemies. And that's wonderful comedy, how that worked out. Comedy in the sense that it worked out wonderfully for God's glory and to the destruction of those, the God of the Philistines. And yet, uh, just a tremendous way. You can never get a hold of God and say, God, I've got you. I've got you figured out. Kind of like a genie, you know, rub your lamp. No, God is God. He has things that we do not understand, we do not get, and yet we want to understand. We strive to to understand God better. What is this whole thing about life? It's to know God. Eternal life. This is eternal life, Jesus says in John 17, 3, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. To know God and to know Christ are pretty much the same ideas. That's why he can say here, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ himself. 
Christ himself is that wonderful reality, that wonderful truth. And we want to have that true knowledge, not just a, a passing or, or a superficial knowledge, but a true life-changing kind of knowledge. This is the the source, the fountainhead of all this wisdom. Now, again, this, this comes as a, a, a sweet, I guess, rebuke for the doctrine that's going on in the Colossian church. Some false teachers were rising up in there, and they were talking all about wisdom, they all talking about knowledge and understanding and mystery and these wonderful things. And they said, we've got some special things over here. Okay, it, it honors Christ, but kind of in a, in a you've, you've got to follow us over here. Listen to our teaching. And by the way, it's going to cost you a little money, just not a whole lot, just a couple, three, four, ten days wages, fine, but come on. And they would draw away disciples after them because they would teach things that would tickle their ears. Second Timothy 4, verse 2, is it? Or 3. They, they would just, we, we like these mysterious kind of unusual doctrines. Well, you know, I've never heard that before. Whoa, that, there's a powerful preacher over there. Look, if it's not according to the book, don't listen to it. And even those, like Second Peter 3 says, sometimes folks can take the word of God and distort it. And hold it up and say, this is the word of God. Listen to it. But what they're teaching is nonsense, foolishness. It's distracting. It is not honoring to Christ. It is more honoring to themselves and their own creativity. Where'd you come up with that doctrine? I just made it up. They would never admit that. Well, it's from the scriptures. Which scripture? Hesitations 2-4? I mean, what, where, where are you quoting this from? Where is it in the book? We want to come back to the mystery of God that is written down for us. It's revealed to us in the scriptures itself. We don't need to listen to these false doctrines, false teachers that are trying to get uh, more followers and more money and all this kind of thing. We want to look to Christ. If Christ is not central to their doctrine, if Christ is not central to their lives, which has some implications, we'll see in just a little bit, about how we ought to live our daily lives, then we probably ought to be reluctant to give them our attention and certainly our money and give them uh, positions of, of teaching and, and authority in the church. We want to honor Christ. In him are hidden all these treasures. Now, again, we clamor after riches. Jesus said uh, we, we strive to lay up treasures on earth. And again, I guess, can I do it twice in, in one sermon, quoting my father-in-law? He says it's getting harder and harder to lay up treasures on earth because, just like Jesus said, moth destroy, thieves break in and steal, you lose the password to your Bitcoin vault or whatever it is. I mean, it's just, oh man, this thing is horrible. Well, it's harder and harder to lay up treasures on earth. Well, why should we do that? Lay up treasures in heaven. There's nothing going to affect that there. That is where true life is. Why would you spend all your time playing with monopoly money, which is kind of what we're doing now, in relation to this eternal weight of glory that is ours, as we, uh, Jesus himself said, if you're faithful in the small things, which is the stuff we have in this world, then God will entrust to us the greater riches. But we'll, when we get those greater riches, will we kind of wish, oh, I wish we had that monopoly money again. Wait a minute, have we heard that before? Moses, why'd you take us out of Egypt? We at least had food back there. Yeah, leeks and onions. And it was in slavery and bondage and it was really bad. But, you know, it, we are so fickle in our living. And, and it's not like the Israelites were any different than us. Aren't we? They're just, God put them up on a pedestal and said, everybody, look at these people. This is, this is the group of, of people I'm going to work with. And I'm going to display my glory in them. 
They are going to be ashamed. They're going to be abased. But I'm going to be gracious to them because that's who I am. God is the one who is doing all these things for his glory. He is the one who is displaying Christ's glory in all these things. We see these wonderful riches of wisdom uh, and knowledge hidden in Christ and yet revealed to those whom, who are part of his family. He has come to bring that, the riches uh, or the treasures here to those who will come to him with open hearts and open hands to receive from him, not clinging to their own riches or wisdom or discretion, but, but drawing near to him, to be filled by him. To, for us to talk about these treasures, this, this idea of treasure can have three different aspects. One of it is in relation to a treasure room, like a vault of some kind. Um, Jesus gave the parable, explained uh, the, you know, the rich man brings out of his treasure, whatever it is, uh, some good things, some bad things. So there's a treasure room. There's also, you can see a treasure box. Remember when the, uh, the Magi presented the gifts to the Lord Jesus and they uh, brought out of their treasure gold and and uh, the other things that they presented to Jesus there. So a, a vault, a box, but then there's actually the treasure itself. What What is it that we celebrate and what is, what is it that's valuable? And we think, oh, you gold or, or maybe some cryptocurrency or maybe some, if I could just have a million followers on Choose Your Social Media Platform, if I could just have that, then I could change the world. What are the riches? What is the treasure that we're after? Long life? You remember when Solomon, God said to Solomon, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. What did Solomon ask for? And what was he celebrated by God for? Solomon asked for wisdom, discernment, to know how to lead God's people well and faithfully. And God said, well done. Because you have not asked for riches or the lives of your enemies, I'm going to give all that to you. Lavished upon him. It's kind of like Romans 8 says, how God delivered over his own son. And how will he not with him freely give us everything? I mean, just every, it's like you go into the store, you buy a packet, packet of gum. They say, you've bought the whole store. This is yours now. All the, all the inventory, the, the, the building, the carts out in the parking lot, it's yours because you bought that pack of gum. Well, I mean, that analogy breaks down because we didn't buy anything. We received it. It was a gift. It was God's grace. And he says, I'm going to lavish riches. But it starts with appreciating wisdom and knowledge, appreciating God's perspective on things. Not that we'd be filled with our own understanding and, and say, you know, I've got this figured out and I just need a couple a couple little tips from God and I, I can take it from here. No, we don't want to act like that. We don't want to say, well, you know, God gave me a leg up, but now I, I can take it from here. That's what God, or excuse me, Paul got after the Galatians about. How, you foolish Galatians, have you begun in the spirit and now you're trying to be perfected in the flesh? That's not going to work. You can't do that. And that's a, a similar incident or issue with what's going on in Colossians in the church there. We'll see it later in, in this chapter that they were trying to base their confidence of salvation and sanctification, growing in Christ on their own works, well, what they did or what they didn't do. We don't do that around here. And Paul says, give glory to Christ. Draw near to him. Your your identity, your reason for being is in Christ himself. Wisdom and knowledge are, are treasured, are hidden right down in Christ himself. This is a, a twofold thing. First of all, facts, truth, reality is centered in Christ. There is no understanding, no, no um, 
interpreting of life properly outside of Christ and who he is. This is just knowing certain details. I mean, in, in some respect, just very practically speaking, when we talk about time, we talk about it in terms of the birth of Christ. I mean, this is a silly example, perhaps. Who, who decided that? Well, whoever decided it, it honors Christ. You know, before Christ and, and the year of our Lord, A.D., right, Anno Domini, this is in relation to Christ himself. This is what is all, it's just, it celebrates and honors Christ. In him are these treasures of wisdom and knowledge, taking knowledge, taking the raw facts, and then being able to apply them in your life. That's wisdom. And even if, and, and there's some overlap in terms of these three terms, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, here even, and certainly in, in Proverbs, you read all these different things, and yet realizing that God is the center of these things. How can we know anything apart from God? How can we know anything apart from his word that gives us understanding of history, both past, present, and future? How can we understand why people do things the way they do? What motivates people? What animates them to do this or the other thing? Uh, what is what is going on even with the deep state, so-called? What what is there a conspiracy going on there? Uh, who knows ultimately about that? But you really don't need to probe any farther than the human heart. The human heart loves power. It loves authority and exercising that dominion over other people, telling people what to do. And it even comes back to Genesis 3 when uh, Eve had that curse upon herself. Uh, your desire for be, shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. It's not the fact that the husband is the head of the wife. It's the fact that the wife wants to usurp or has that desire to supplant her husband's authority in that uh, context. And so we see that, that the desire to, to, to rule and to reign over other people, it, it's part and parcel of humanity, and and not being content with just a little bit. Colossians uh, 3, 5 talks about greed, which is idolatry. It is that measure of our, we can, we're never satisfied. Proverbs talks about the leech who had two daughters, and, and what did they say? Give, give, we, we need, we, have, we want, we want from you to give to us. We can never be satisfied. We want to be satisfied in Christ, want to have his perspective on lies. We want to realize that if he gives, blessed be God. If he takes, blessed be God. If he takes health, if he, if he takes my job, my relationships, whatever, blessed be God. He is the one who is in my life. And I don't understand, I may not understand, I may never understand it, but in him are hidden all these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Being able to apply that in, in terms of interpreting things and putting things together. I mean, you can know that uh, um, you can use a hammer to drive a nail, but did you know that a hammer can be used for other purposes as well? It is said, uh, if your only tool is a hammer, you're going to treat everything like a nail. Well, wait a minute, that's a screw. The screws and nails are different. Knowledge knows that a, a hammer is for uh, a nail. Wisdom knows that you shouldn't use it for a screw, unless you're trying to break it off or something. I mean, it's just it's not a, a reasonable thing. Wisdom knows how to apply these facts and these details, knows how to how they relate to one another, have a, a broader perspective on life, which is why getting into this idea of a Christian worldview is so important. Why is it important to have a Christian worldview as opposed to just a uh, a secular worldview? Because it's how we interpret life. It is how we understand motivations of people and understand, help us understand priorities or set priorities in our lives. 
you know, what should we be spending our time with? What kind of, what kind of music or books or articles or, or whatever should we, should we be watching and listening to? What kind of vocation should we be present in, you know, act, be active in? What kind of relationships ought we develop? Or how should we be spending our money? How should we be devoting ourselves into a, a, a self-betterment, uh, not in a, in a grandiose way, but how can we improve ourselves so we can be more of service to other people? What kind of skills can we gain? What kind of knowledge can we gain? All these things come back to a Christian worldview, understanding God's word is true. And it's not just for heaven and hell, you know, heaven and the future and hell to avoid. It's for how do we live our lives right now? In Christ are hidden all these wonderful things. I'd like to end just a, a brief conversation because this is so important. It's a constant uh, conversation in our household anyway. And uh, just a, a brief um uh, statement about questions that we ask in our lives. I will avoid naming names because my name, uh, well, just, that's fine. Uh, we're, uh, this, these, these are questions that have been asked, well, forever. All throughout time. And they're celebrated as, as questions of philosophy, questions of, of a higher, uh, purpose. And how do we understand truth? And how do we, how do we, uh, just, get a grip on life. How do we do this? You know, again, some things cannot be discovered. They must be revealed. We have a, a burden. Uh, God made us curious. He made us to investigate, to explore this world. So many discoveries have been made about uh, uh, animal life, about the cosmos. We, we All these things can be discovered, and yet there are certain things we can never begin to even scratch the surface of because they, they've not been revealed to us. We don't know about certain of these things. Uh, but the questions, some of these questions can be answered and have been answered in the book, in the Bible. Like the question, where did we come from? Well, Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-3, through where where did we come from? Well, the related question is, where are we going? What is after all this stuff? Where, where do people go when they die? What happens after death? The Bible has an answer. Does the world have an answer? Is the world concerned about it? Yeah, I think the world is pretty well concerned about it. There's fear of death. There's fear of the unknown for a lot of people. Other people say, no, when, we, when you die, you die. But even the, a, a basic question it, between where did we come from and where are we going, what is life? What does it mean to live? How can we measure it? How do we know when, for example, people are alive and when are they dead? And what does it mean then to have life? What are those components? What are those aspects of life? Maybe uh, another question, what is truth? And how do we know what truth is? Whose truth is it? Is truth objective? It is, it is it's regardless of who's looking at it, or is it more of a subjective nature? You know, I, it depends on who's asking the question. It, when is speculation helpful? Well, we're going to see in, in the, well, Paul's letters many times, he says, avoid foolish speculation. You know, what if this or what if that? All these postulations of, of these things. Well, let's let's start with what we know. And so speculation can be helpful, but a lot of times it is harmful. What about the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? So where do we come from? Where are we going? But why are we even here? What is a meaning? What and how do you how do you find that meaning? And what is it that gives life meaning? Many people would say it's a spring day in, in Kentucky when the bluegrass is growing and the horses are neighing. I just made that up. I don't know. But other people would say it's it's uh, mama's home-baked apple pie. I mean, what is meaning? What is the source of your joy and contentment in life? Uh, sh what should a person strive for in life? People are striving for all manner of thing, but what should we be striving for? What should we be satisfied with? 
related to that, of course, how ought a person live? And what governs human relationships? What are those aspects of ethics, morality, and just being a loving neighbor to another? What, what is it that ought to govern these, these relationships that we have? What about uh, just individually? Can a person change? And you're asking that, my husband or my wife, can my wife change? Can my, can my child change? Can my neighbor change? Well, yes, but wait a minute. Why should a person change? And what should they change to? What should they forsake and what should they put on? As Paul says in, in uh, does he say? Yeah, he says it here in Colossians, but Ephesians 4, he says it more, off, more fully. Okay, so can a person change? Yes. Why should a person change? Well, because various reasons. What should a person change? How? How do we do this? How do we change? How, how does this even work? And, okay, what is it to be a conscious human being? What does it mean to think? What does it mean to have emotions? And how do we use our emotions? Because sometimes emotions use us, and we are abused by those things. But how do we, how do we live as a full-bodied soul, embodied person? Using our will, using our emotions, using our uh, thought, our deliberation process. Uh, what is, what, what are all these questions? There are many, many more questions that we can ask and, and lots of folks have, have uh, answered or attempted to answer or thought about these things. But one thing I'd like to close with, I already said I was going to close with this, but volition. The question of volition and free will. Do, do, do we, do humans have free will? Uh, which is to say, another way, how much control does a person have over their choices, over their um, uh, the decisions? And of course, they affect behavior. But it comes back to the choice that we are. Uh, that we, do we have much control over our choices? Do we are we predetermined? Is there is there a fate? Is there some kind of uh, outside factors that that direct us one way or another? Uh, would we just as well if we were born into an Arab family be uh, you know in, in the Middle East be Muslim as opposed to Christian? Because that's where, how we're raised. We're raised in the Western world, so Christian, obviously. Well, is that, is that so? It's not always so. All these different things. What, what measure of outside factors influence us? Let me give two perspectives on this question, and then I promise we will be done with that. Two questions on the issue of free will or volition. Uh, the ability we have to make choices that, that, that affect, not just affect, but determine the course of our lives. Well, Ultimately, throughout Scripture, from beginning to end, the predominant concern that God has for humans is not so much that they would exercise their own free will as much as they would obey God's will. What is that? What did we just say? God is not so much concerned about us exercising our own free will, but exercising his will. Well, how dare God say that? I thought he was he 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 didn't make us to be robots. Well, no. But think about God the Son, Jesus Christ. He did not come to do his own will, did he? But to do the will of him who sent him, which is to say to do the will of God the Father. Now, lest you think, oh, it's an easy thing for Jesus to say that because God only wants good things for Jesus. And yes, Part of God's will, though, was that Jesus came to suffer and die on the cross to become sin for us. That wasn't a happy-go-lucky, I'll do that on a Friday night, and by Sunday morning I'll be fine. Do you have any appreciation for, do I have any appreciation for, the 
agony. In this context, Paul talks about striving, struggling, agony. But the agony that Jesus went through in those final hours before his betrayal and his arrest, where he prayed not just once, twice, but three, excuse me, three times, Father, if there's any other way for this whole salvation thing to be accomplished, let's do that. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He said that three times because it was such a painful burden for him. And yet he came not to do his own will, but to do the will of him who sent him, such that he could say, it's done. I have resolved. I am going to accomplish God's purpose for me right now. He says, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Even in the context of Colossians, Paul says, this is what I want you to know. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is what we are after, to know the will of God, and not just to know it, but then to do it. I mean, if we know the good we ought to do, Jesus says, we don't do that. That's sin. That's wrong. That's rebellion. That's lawlessness. We want to, in fact, Epiphras, remember the guy who planted the church in Colossae that went to Paul in Rome, uh, Colossians 4.12, Epiphras prays earnestly for this Colossian church that what? That they may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. When it comes back to the question of volition then, free will, can you obey God? Will you obey God? Will you use your volition? Will you love God? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, will you love him with everything that you are and be fully assured in that? First Peter 4, I won't take the time, but you might make a note of it. First Peter 4, 1 through 6, talks about the contrast of those who are in Christ versus those who are outside of Christ. But he says, uh, verse 2 says, Christians ought not live the rest of their lives in the flesh and no longer for the lusts or desires of men, but for the will of God. This is what we're saved for, to do God's will. One person was asked, what do you look forward to in heaven? Absence of sin. Can you just imagine what that would be like? Not just in your own personal life. I mean, that's to be sinless in your own life or in the life of your family or community. How about the whole world, free from the curse? Oh, that would be glory, right? We no longer live for the lust of men, but for the will of God. The time, he says, I'm not, I said I'm not going to read the whole thing. I probably won't. But the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you or speak negatively about you. But we want to, verse 6 says, we want to live in the Spirit according to the will of God. This is what we're after. First John 2.17 says the world is passing away and also its lusts or desires, the desires that motivate behavior. Um, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The one who does the will of God. One of the second aspect of volition or free will to consider and as part of this big discussion about free will is not just we ought to be more consumed with God's will, but secondly, there is condemnation for those who are not concerned concerned about God's will. There is culpability, or which is to say, uh, um, the uh, to be declared wrong or on the wrong side of of God's will. Do you remember? Well, then the proper response to that is repentance, right? Whoa! If, if I'm guilty, if I am liable for my performance of God's will or not then I think I should change and be more in line with God's will. I want to be like Jesus, who was always obedient to the Lord, the Father. I want to be like him. The answer to that is repentance. 
Do you remember that situation back in Luke three, Luke, Luke thirteen, rather, when people said, "Hey, Jesus, do you hear about those Galileans whose blood, uh, you know, the, their own flesh blood was was mixed with the blood of the sacrifices by by uh, Pontius Pilate?" And Jesus says, "You know, do you suppose?" that somehow those Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? There's that word fate. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, okay, the answer is not to, to find injustice in the world and God. there's no justice with God. No, there is justice with God unless you perish. Unless you, you, unless you repent, you will, all, you will likewise perish. And then he gives another example. He says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There is culpability for our uh, disobedience, for our sinfulness. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world. Okay, well, wait a minute. Don't be conformed means that we have a choice in it. We don't have to be conformed to this world. We're, we're not bound by external circumstances. We can be transformed. How do we do that? Vote Republican. No, wait. No, that's not it. We can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's this. We renew our minds by God's word so that we may prove not just how do we do life, but what, is, what does God want me to do? That you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And Ephesians 2, last, last text here, that we were dead. What's the issue? Why, are, why does God get after us so much? Because we're dead and our trespasses and sins. We used to walk just in, in all that stuff according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And we just engaged in that, lived formerly in the lust of our flesh, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That doesn't sound very good. It doesn't sound like we're lined up with God's will if we're off searching after this thing. These wonderful two little words in verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what we're after. We want to know God better. We want to know his wonderful word and his will. And we want not just to know it, but to do it to have wisdom enough to say, that's what I want, to hunger and thirst after that righteousness and find out the joys that are ours at his right hand, the joys that we've tried to fill with other other means. God says, when are you going to stop chasing after vanity? When are you going to come to me, the fountain, the, the, not just the fountain, but the, the spring of living water? That's where real life is. Will you be satisfied in me? Will you, uh, as Psalm 2 says, kiss that son? Will you honor him? Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the truth of your word, transformative truth, hopeful, life-giving truth that you give to us. We pray that we would give our proper attention to the Lord Christ. Please help us to follow definitely his example of, of being under uh, uh, or lined up under your will, the will of God, being totally consumed with that idea, speaking only your words, doing only your works. But even more than that, he made it possible for us to be transformed out of the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son of your love, that is Christ's kingdom. He made that whole thing possible through redemption, through his blood, through his sacrifice, his death on the cross for us, so that anyone who would repent of sin, turn away from it, come back to Christ, return to life, return to, to true knowledge, wisdom, understanding, would have this salvation.
We pray that each soul here would be in a right relationship with you, and not just right in terms of the future and, and be present with you, having escaped the fires of hell, but daily transformed by the renewing of their minds, daily taken, enraptured, captured by the, the glorious realities of Christ himself, what he's done for us, what he continues to do for us. He's interceding at your right hand, and he is, is preparing a place for us. He wants us to be right with him, and he's coming again, and we will rule with him. Wow. Please help us to be taken with that. We pray that it would take over our lives, our daily concerns, and all these things. Help us to lay our whole lives at your feet for you to direct and and uh, um, fulfill according to your good purposes. Thank you for this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.